I would ask you to grab your Bibles and turn to not Hebrews. We're going to be stepping away from Hebrews for just a couple weeks uh, over Palm Sunday and Easter. And today we're going to be looking at uh, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem found in John chapter 12. So I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 12. And I'm going to invite Albert over here to read for us from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. So please stand as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be as well. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we gather as your people. We gather to give you honor and praise and worship because you are worthy. You are our King. You will rule forever. And so uh, we uh, ask that as we sit under your word this morning, that you would uh, declare your sovereign lordship over our lives, that we would relinquish everything that we have to you that we would trust you as a good and faithful king and a loving and good father to us, that you know what's best for us, and your plan is perfect. So I pray that uh, as, we, as we look into these scriptures this morning, that you would help us to see Jesus for who he truly is, not merely who we want him to be or who we think he should be, but for who he truly is, our great and glorious king. So guide us into truth this morning, and we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. 
Let me ask you, have you ever had unmet expectations? Who am I kidding? I mean, we, we all have. All of us have. We all have certain expectations in our lives. And uh, oftentimes those expectations are, are not met. Um, I love a good meme, right? Who doesn't love a good meme? And so uh, have you ever seen these uh, memes that are kind of like expectation versus reality, right? To kind of uh, make light of this, this struggle that we all have. Well, I have a few of these for us just, just to kind of show you. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe. There it is. Oh, wait, here we go. Snowman, like if you ever wanted to build a snowman and you think it's going to turn out like that and yet ends up being a pile of mud with uh, some white snow in it. Um, or maybe you're driving along and you think you're looking pretty cool like uh, Ryan Gosling, but actually you probably look more like this guy. Um, I, I, I oftentimes am like that when I'm driving around when, and then when I realize that I'm driving a, a minivan from like 2008, it dawns on me. Not as cool as I, as I think I am. Um, or maybe you're a parent and uh, you thought sleeping with your kid would, uh, would be so nice and, and pleasant and nice to cuddle and it ends up being something like, like that on the bottom. Um, get that kid in its own bed so we can actually sleep, right? Um, maybe uh, some, of the, some of the fellas in here, when you're entering into a dating relationship or marriage, you thought life would be about just you know, going on nice vacations with your wife, um, but it ends up looking more like this, like a trip to Ikea. For us, it's more like Costco, I think, or something. So, And then, uh, I don't know if any of you ladies can, can relate to the next one. I, I doubt if any of you can, but maybe for some women out there, it might be like this. When you try to wear lipstick, you think you look like that, but you look more like the Joker. I don't know. So Daniel said I could show that, so uh, blame him if, that, if that's too much. I don't know. So, anyway... Um, we all end up with, with certain expectations of, of life, what things are going to look like. We oftentimes place those expectations on other people. And uh, what we see in the life of Jesus is that the people that begin to follow him, begin to say that they wanted to, wanted to come after him, begin to place certain expectations on Jesus, things that they wanted him to do for them. And what we see throughout Jesus' life and ministry, that He was always one who was kind of reshaping people's expectations of Himself. And, and everything He did and everything that he, that, he, that he said, people never knew where He was actually going to go. He couldn't be figured out. He couldn't be put in a box. Because Jesus knew that He, he was bringing them something other than maybe what they thought that they needed. And so we're going to see that today throughout this story. That Jesus is one who, who reshapes our expectations, especially when it comes to who He is in our lives. But in order to understand what's going on in the, in the, in the text here, we have to understand the setting. This setting is Passover week. It is, it's the start of the, of the week leading up to Passover. This is one of the great pilgrimage feasts in the nation of Israel's history, where every year, almost the entire nation would gather at the city of Jerusalem around the temple to observe this festival and feast time. And during this week, there were, there were, there were thousands of people coming up. The uh, early historian Josephus had numbers up of two million. Many, many people think those numbers are inflated, but at any rate, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of people from all over coming into Jerusalem. Just massive crowds of people. The city is bustling with, with busyness going on. Preparations are beginning to be made for Passover. There were ceremonial cleansings that had to take place. There were, there were sacrificial lambs that had to be approved and selected and, and ultimately slaughtered, all culminating in 
this night of Passover that would occur later. And that would then launch them into the seven days of unleavened bread. And so this is really the high point of the Jewish calendar. This is a key moment for them. And this is the setting that we find Jesus coming into this story. But we also need to understand kind of the, the, the narrative background that's taking place here. You see, if we look at the immediate context, there's been some really interesting developments in the recent chapters. Jesus has been out serving and ministering for a few years at this point. His popularity has been rising. But things are kind of hitting a point of critical mass. There are rising tensions uh, with the religious leaders of the time. And specifically, a kind of uh, a turning point was the raising of Lazarus from the dead back in chapter 11 of John. He raised his friend Lazarus from the dead after being in the tomb for, for, for multiple days. And this was a massive miracle. Of course, it grabbed many people's attention. Word was spreading about Jesus doing this. And so this was kind of a, a final straw for the religious leaders, John tells us. They had been putting up with this Jesus guy for a long time, trying to just kind of ignore him, hoping things wouldn't get too out of hand. But uh, at this point, he is stirring the people up. Many people are going after him. They have concerns about what this might lead to. That potentially, if Jesus gets enough people you know, stirred up after him, then he, he may lead these, these people into kind of an insurrection against Rome even. And Rome may come in and just squash them all, and the religious leaders are probably just trying to keep things peaceful and kind of, you know, accept the, the condition that they had under, under the thumb of Rome. And so, John tells us that after this resurrection from Lazarus, the religious leaders began to seek a way to kill Jesus. They were plotting and planning how to take him out. And so the threat of his execution uh, actually drives him into the wilderness. In, the, in chapter 11, verse 54, it tells us. But now Passover is coming. And everyone is supposed to go up to Jerusalem. And so the questions begin to, to circulate throughout the community. What is Jesus going to do? Is He going to show up? What's going to happen? Is there going to be this big showdown? What is Jesus going to do about Passover? Will He come? I don't know if any of you care, but this week was uh, Masters Week, one of the biggest golf tournaments of the year, which I love to watch. And, uh, and, and this year, everybody began to wonder, is Tiger Woods going to play? And in the golf world, it was the big topic. You know, he had been trying to recover from a, from a terrible leg injury for the past year plus after a horrific car accident, and he hasn't played golf in forever. But, I mean, he's won the Masters five times, so is he going to give it a go? And so there was, everybody was questioning, wondering. Then he went, to the, he went to Augusta National. He began to play some practice rounds, and everybody started talking. Well, is he going to come? Is he going to come? Is he going to be here? And it was like Wednesday, I think he announced or something, that, he, that he, was, he was leaning towards trying to play. And out for a practice round that Tiger was playing, I mean, there were just throngs of people around, around him just, just to watch him practice and hit a ball. So think of that just ratcheted up even more and more with these things surrounding Jesus. Everybody knows about Him and, and what He's been doing. And everybody wants to see and be a part of, of what's taking place. This could be a massive turning point in Israel's history. And so they're wondering, what is Jesus going to do? And in the coming days, what He does takes everyone by surprise. Even His closest followers. But we see in this passage that, that Jesus for the first time begins to embrace the crowd's desire to label Him as their King. But what He shows them is that He comes as a very unexpected and different kind of King than what they were seeking. 
And so we want to see just, just three movements here where Jesus arrives in an unexpected way, He offers an unexpected deliverance, and then He establishes an unexpected kingdom. So in verses 12 to 15, we see that Jesus first arrives in a very unexpected way. We hear that he, he starts heading towards Jerusalem from the, the city of Bethany where he is staying with Lazarus' family at the house of Martha. And Bethany is about two miles outside of the city. And so he begins to head in on what we believe is Sunday morning before Passover. And John has told us that, that, that they heard that he was staying there, so there's already been a, kind of a massive group of people who have gathered out in Bethany who, who wanted to see Jesus, but also wanted to see Lazarus and confirm, is this guy actually back from the dead? What happened here? So there's already kind of this, this massive group there that, that actually probably is, begins to follow Jesus as he leaves the city. And Jesus does this crazy thing where we don't have time to go into it, but he, he tells his disciples to go into one of the, the neighboring villages and to, uh, to find a, a baby donkey. He actually just steals this guy's baby donkey. It's a hilarious story Matthew and Mark and Luke record for us. Um, he steals his baby donkey, and he sits on the donkey to ride down into Jerusalem. And so there's this massive group of people that, that, that are in Jerusalem who hear that he's coming, and so they say, hey, let's go out and, and, and see him. So, so there's both, both a group with Jesus and a group coming out of Jerusalem, so the, the streets and the path is just lined with, with, with thousands of people wanting to see this. And you can imagine, as, as they're standing there waiting for Jesus to come and to see them, what they're expecting. They're expecting if, if He is, if he is the, the coming King, then He's going to come with this grand, amazing entrance. And as He comes down over the hill off of the Mount of Olives, they see this Jewish guy sitting on a baby donkey trotting down the road. Not exactly the, the epitome of some grand, strong entrance, right? To ride in on a donkey in the manner that Jesus does is really just a display of, of a peaceful entrance rather than this play of strength. Right? And so, so, so why does He do this? Did Jesus just get tired of walking around? You know, I've been walking around for three years, so you know what? I'm going to hitch a ride this time, so I want to ride a donkey. No, Jesus knows what He's doing. He knows his scriptures. He knows the Old Testament. He knows what the prophets said. And he knows that Zechariah once spoke about a king who was coming like this. And so in Jesus doing this, he is intentionally taking on himself the prophecy of Zechariah and displaying himself as the king that he spoke of. And John tells us that he found a donkey and fulfilled what was written in Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In Zechariah 9, he says, Behold, your king is coming righteous, having salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey. And so here in this scene, we see Jesus displaying the diverse attributes of his kingship. Right? He comes certainly in boldness, right? Like he knows what's facing him. He knows that the religious leaders are against him, that they want to take his life. And he boldly walks in there, not with an army, but with his ragtag following, you know, 12 random disciples, enters in on this donkey. So he has this boldness, but he also is clothed in this deep humility. He's bold in the face of looming suffering, and yet at the same time, he chooses to humble himself under the plan of God. 
And we see in this that it's the humble strength of Jesus and His kingship. It's His humility that also serves as an example for us to follow. You see, it's only when we actually clothe ourselves in humility, when we're, when, when we're able to set aside our pride that seeks to kind of maintain this self-image of, of, of who we want people to think that we are, when, we, when we, we can set that aside, then we actually get freed up from the tyranny of the fears of our failures to, 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 to not measure up, to not be what we want people to think that we are. It actually allows us to be motivated just to serve and love others. This is the way that Jesus comes. This is the type of king that he comes as. It's an unexpected king, and he comes in an unexpected way. In verses 13 through 18, we see that he also offers an unexpected deliverance. What do the people do? They, they in response to Jesus coming and heading into Jerusalem, they begin to gather in support, and they shout out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I love the call open by just reading all of Psalm 118. It's kind of long, so I didn't have time to do it. So I'm glad he did earlier because that really is the, the, the backdrop of, of what they're saying and what they're proclaiming here. This, this psalm that had become known as this, this messianic declaration of the hope that God would one day do this for them. And so Hosanna literally translates... Save us now. They're screaming out, save us. We want you, our king, to save us, to rescue us. The crowd identifies Jesus as the promised Messiah who would deliver Israel. And they desire to announce him as their king. This is something they had tried to do before, but Jesus wouldn't let him. If you go back to John chapter 6, verse 15, they, they tried to, to say, hey, come on, let, let, let's, let's get behind you. Let's put you forth as, as our candidate, so to speak. And Jesus wouldn't, wouldn't do it at the time. But now he's beginning to, to accept this. But what he's, what he's doing here, though, is also showing the different kind of king and what he's offering them. Because what kind of king were they seeking? What were they wanting? The nation had been living for, for years under tyranny from other nations. They had been exiled by Assyria and Babylon. They had returned to the land, but things were still a mess. And, and now Rome had them under their thumb. And now, in light of this, they still have been clinging to their Old Testament promises of redemption and restoration. And now they can taste it. And surely, this is the one who's going to deliver Israel from her enemies. Surely, this is He. And so they cry for salvation. Save us. Hosanna. And what they wanted was freedom from political tyranny. But what they ultimately were offered by Jesus was freedom from spiritual darkness. And you see, his actions actually are unclear even to his own disciples, John tells us. It says that in, in verse 16, his disciples didn't understand what he, what he was doing and what he meant. Right? They, they don't see that. It, it, it's, it isn't until after his death and resurrection that they look back and be like, oh, that's what that was all about. And they began to put the pieces together. And the reason they couldn't see it was because they weren't looking for this kind of Messiah. They didn't have a category for a crucified king. They wanted a deliverer. They wanted freedom. How is this, his death going to lead towards what they desire? And they had heard him say it over and over again. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to die. And Jesus kept making allusion to his, his, his death in the end. 
And they kept just scratching their head. I wonder what he means by that. Jesus is so, so strange in the things he says. And so for you, as you think about your relationship with Jesus, are you willing to let him surprise you? To meet you in unexpected ways? Or do you have Jesus kind of in a box? Where this is what you think he should do for you. This is what he can provide for your life. And this is ultimately what you're willing to then do for him. But anything apart from that, then you're out. That's not what I signed up for. But are you willing to actually trust Jesus and let him do with your life whatever he wants because you know that his plan is actually best for you? Jesus came and offered them not the deliverance they wanted, but the deliverance that they needed. Then our third point here in verses 19 through 26, Jesus establishes an unexpected kingdom. He does this first by gathering an unusual following to himself. Right? In verse 19, the the Pharisees said to one another, they're like, we've gained nothing. This is getting out of control. We can't contain this. And they, they, they use this phrase and they say, the world has gone after him. And the world in John is really a word that describes kind of all, everything set against God's design and His plan. So this word is very intentional here. And so there's this deep irony where, where it's the world that follows Him while it's the Jewish leaders that oppose Him. And this is, this is really important to notice because it, it reveals that Jesus does not gather to Himself those who you would think would pull, put forth His agenda. If he's going to be the king of Israel and, and, and redeem and rescue Israel from their, their subjugation to Rome, then you'd think that he would want the religious elites, the national leaders on his side. He should be playing the political landscape to get them on his team. But he's not playing that game. He's actually gathering a, a very unexpected group of followers to himself. And we see this especially when we make the connection that John makes in this, what, what might be an unusual uh, meeting in, verse cha- in, in chapter 12, verse 20, where we see this group of Greeks who comes and wants to meet Jesus. And we may read that and be like, oh, that's an interesting point. But John's making a very intentional point here with these people coming to Jesus at this time. Now, these Greeks are not necessarily people from the nation of Greece, but it's a, it's a, it's a reference to, to non-Jewish people, Gentiles, who were living outside of Israel in the, in, in the Greek-speaking world. Referenced and referred to as Greeks. They were possibly there in, in Jerusalem at this time because they were God-fearers. Maybe they were like Cornelius later in Acts, kind of seeking Israel's God, but, but they were foreigners. They were outsiders. Well, they come and they find Philip, Jesus' disciple, and they ask him, hey, Philip, uh, hey, can we, can we have a meeting with Jesus? And Philip's taken aback by their request, and so he uh, asks Andrew, hey, Andrew, do you think this is okay? Should, could these guys come meet Jesus? Andrew's not sure. So Andrew and Philip both go over, over and they ask Jesus directly, hey, do you want to meet these guys? These guys want to meet you. And Jesus' response here, <laughs> I love it, it's, it's awesome. He says, his response is this, do you, do you want to meet these guys? And he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Can you imagine Philip and Andrew just like, Okay, well, that's great, Jesus, but uh, what about these guys? <laughs> you just want to talk to them or what? So Jesus' response always seems so, so strange. What is, what, is he, 
What is he saying here? What's going on is that he responds here not directly to the disciples' question about the Greeks, but he responds to the situation which is presented by their coming to him. There's a sense in which it's the Jewish leaders who have rejected him, and it's these outsiders who are now coming and wanting to come after Jesus. You see what's going on? It's this this point in which this was really God's desire and design for the world from the beginning, that the nation of Israel would be a place not just merely exclusive to him, but it would be a place that, that would be a light to the nations, that the nations could be drawn to God through Israel. That was his desire the entire time. And now we're seeing it starting to happen. These outsiders, these Gentiles want to come to him. The world is coming after Jesus. And Jesus' response is, now is like my time. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. D.A. Carson says this, in this instance, the approach of the Greeks is for Jesus a kind of trigger, a signal that his climactic hour has dawned. Jesus knows that he cannot yet gather all men to himself until he first goes to the cross. And it was just at the right time, in the fullness of time, that God sent forth his Son to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus knows that this final, ultimate, climactic moment is here, and he has to finish his mission. And in this, in this passage, Jesus is beginning to clearly define the parameters around those who can follow him. And he's not looking for people, perfect people, for the, the religious elites and those who have religion down and figured out, who are just merely spiritual people. But he's only looking for those who recognize who he truly is. Those who belong to Christ's kingdom are not included based on their own merit, their works, their nationality, their personality, their background, or whatever else you want to add to that list, but they are included in His kingdom based only on their faith in the true person and the work of Jesus. So if you're here and you've never come to faith in Jesus because maybe you just don't feel like you fit in with church people, your life is just a little different and your background is kind of messy, and maybe you feel like you got to kind of clean things up to be able to kind of fit in here or make it within Jesus' community. What Jesus is saying that He is gathering a surprising and unexpected group of people to Him. Not finding those that He needs that can, that can serve Him the best or put forth His agenda, but by those who pursue Him because they recognize Him for who He truly is. And the sacrifice of Himself that He wants to offer. And so with this statement that the hour has come, we're confronted with the reality that something big is about to happen. Something massive is, is, is stirring. Before, Jesus had tried to silence the people's uh, testimony about Him, but now He's ready to go forward and fulfill His mission. So Jesus' kingdom is gathered with an unusual following. And then secondly, the last thing that we see is that Jesus' kingdom is also one that is grounded on inverted priorities. See, when we enter into His kingdom, our values and our priorities are reshaped around His. And to show this, Jesus uses this illustration of a kernel of wheat. A kernel of wheat being planted, showing that death is the necessary means to actually producing life. 
He uses this common element of, of a society like theirs where, where growing wheat was very common. They knew how this worked. Maybe some of you, it's getting close to, to garden planting season. It is for us in our backyard. And every year, we, we put those seeds in the ground and we hope that they're going to do something, right? And then oftentimes my wife questions whether they're, gonna, whether they're actually going to sprout or come up. So she, she maybe adds like other plants that are already started and then we end up having more than, more than we need. But, uh, but we, we recognize the, the illustration Jesus is setting forth, right? A grain of wheat must fall into the earth, be planted in the ground. And then he says, and die. So this planting and then burying in the ground symbolizes death. And that is necessary in order to actually produce a harvest and a crop later. If you just take your seeds and you set them on your counter and wait for them to, to grow, what happens? Nothing. They do nothing. And so here Jesus is, is actually explicitly pointing towards His ultimate death, burial, and resurrection as the means of reaping a harvest of souls. And Jesus says that the way His kingdom is going to grow and to bear fruit is if He dies. And the only way that He's actually going to be glorified is by not seeking His own glory, but by humbling Himself under the Father's will. And it's in that that the Father will exalt Him above everything. See how His kingdom is inverted? And Jesus then goes on and He takes the principle that guides His path of suffering and He applies it to us, to His followers. One writer said this, that Jesus dying for your salvation is His design for your imitation. If you want your life to produce fruit, then you have to die, He's saying. So what do we do with that? See, Jesus doubles down on this and He presents this contrast to us. Where He says this, if, if you love your life, you will end up losing your life. But if you hate your life, you will actually keep it for eternal life. What does Jesus mean by this? What does it mean to love your life? Well, I think we have to understand this against, back, uh, against the backdrop of, of the law in the Old Testament. What was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So to love your own life, your own self, is essentially idolatry. It's, it, it's putting ourselves in the place of God. And he says that in doing that, we're actually giving up our life because it's only in Christ that you can find true life. We cannot find meaning and significance and joy just in terminating that on ourselves. We, when left to ourselves and on our own, if we worship just ourselves... Our lives produce nothing. But, he says, if you hate your life, well, hate sounds like kind of a strong word, right? Not how we use it. Well, this is just kind of an idiomatic use here. It's, it's giving the antithesis of what he just said. What's the opposite? So, to, to, to hate your life would be to not idolize your life, but actually willingly set it aside in service to Jesus. And so we see these statements throughout Jesus' teaching, Right? Where he says things like, take up your cross daily. To find your life, you have to lose it. Deny yourself and follow me. If you seek to gain the world, then you're going to lose your soul. So what do we do with these? How do we actually try to understand what it means and looks like? What does it look like practically to, to hate our life for us living today in Fort Collins in 2022? 
How do we know if we are loving our lives or if we're hating our lives? Because the stakes are pretty huge, right? Like what he says, it's the difference between losing everything and gaining eternity. The thing is, sometimes these passages can just kind of leave us feeling guilty. As though, man, we, I don't know, my, my life's pretty comfortable and I just work my job and, and live here in this town. I have a house and, and everything. And so, like, am I just supposed to feel guilty that I gotta, I gotta just give up everything and, 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 and travel around the world, you know, and, and go become a missionary in a foreign nation and, and do that? Like, like, is that, is that ultimately what, what this passage is, is, is calling us to? And we could struggle to, to just maybe feel guilty that maybe we're not hating our life enough. But we have to remember that Jesus' purpose here is, is, is not to call us to any form or, or just a pattern of lifestyle. So I don't know if I could clearly answer for you what, it, what it's going to look like. But we have to understand that Jesus always is going deeper into the very core of who we are and what we value the most. God calls all of us to different paths. For some in here, maybe God is calling you to do something pretty wild, pretty radical. To maybe someday give up your, your life here and, and, and join a church plant in another place that you don't know what's going to happen there. Maybe it is following that tugging on your heart to, to take the gospel to the ends of the world. To be a, a missionary in foreign lands. It might look like that. And for others, it might look like faithful, everyday service in your ordinary life, working your nine-to-five job. You see, the Gospel and what Jesus is calling about is not merely getting us to conform to some outward act, but He's calling us to a deep, internal transformation of heart. And that transformation, for some, may, may appear radical, and for others, it may be ordinary. But Jesus is always about calling us to have a heart that just longs to follow Him wherever He leads us, no matter how radical or how ordinary that actually may be. And here Jesus goes on to just speak of the glory that's offered to the one who serves Jesus. So this hating of life is, is actually not mere just self-denial, just merely giving everything up just for the sake of looking as though you, know, you, you don't live with much. It's not merely minimalistic living. But it's an exchange of serving ourselves and serving Jesus. To serve Him is to follow Him down His path, and His was a path of suffering. So Jesus over and over again calls us to true discipleship, and He says, you want to follow Me? Then you're going to have to die to yourself. You want to come after Me? Well, guess what? I'm heading to the cross, so you better take up yours. And I think we have to be careful that we don't deceive ourselves into thinking that we want to follow Jesus when actually all we want to do is gain something from Jesus. The crowds loved Jesus' miracles. They were amazed by them. They would even sit through His teaching for extended periods of time. And they love Him when He's maybe going to overthrow Rome and, and free their nation. But what happens in the end? Who's left when it's all said and done? His disciples scatter. They run away. Peter, Peter didn't, you know, rebukes Jesus as though, you know, Jesus is going to die. And Peter says, no, you can't do that. That's not how this is supposed to go. They all had certain expectations of Jesus and what he was going to do for, for them. 
And in the end, they said, well, wait, oh, oh, you actually want my life? Not so fast. Maybe I'll I'll take what you're offering. We'll, We'll take your miracles and we'll take what you can give us. But don't just demand too much from us. So how do we know if we're loving or hating our lives? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves some pretty deep questions, some honest questions. What shapes us fundamentally at our deepest being with, with our values and our priorities? And what determines what you're actually willing to do with your life? You see, when we follow Jesus into His kingdom, we enter into a completely new set of kingdom values and priorities. In His kingdom, the way up is actually the way down through service. The way to glory is through humiliation and sacrifice. The way to safety is by dependence on something outside of ourselves. The source of satisfaction is actually found in praising another. So what determines your priorities of your life? Those things that you choose to invest your time, your resources, your talents towards. On our own, if we love our lives, then what we think that we need goes on top. It takes the front seat. What we long for is first priority. But ultimately, if we hate our lives, then we willingly set aside ourselves and we place Jesus as King and all those priorities get reordered. His will becomes that which is on top. His commands assume priority. His glory and not ours becomes what is most important for us. So as I close things down, let me just ask you, what are you ultimately willing to do with your life? What are you willing to let die so that fruit can be born through you? For some in here, it may be pretty radical. In others, it may be pretty ordinary. But Jesus is trying to tell His disciples this. He needs them to understand what true discipleship is. And for us, we need to ask the same question. What do we need to allow to die in order for fruit to be born into our life? Very practically, what maybe for you it's your concept of what community is. Maybe even you've been here for a while or or you've had seasons where maybe you've been in life group and you're just kind of done with that. And what you want is just three or four friends who you get along with, who you connect with, who you could just kind of spend time with. That's all the community you need. You don't need difficult relationships in your life throwing you off and you, you're going places and so you, you, you just need the right people around you to take you to where you want to go. But maybe Jesus is calling you to actually sacrifice a little bit of your perfect idea of community to actually enter into relationship with difficult people, people that are hard to love. And maybe in, in dying to yourself, you'll actually see the fruit born through a beautiful community, not shaped on our similarity, but by shaped on something else that only God can create. Maybe it's an unhealthy relationship you find yourself in, or longing for, that is controlling you, that you know is keeping you from following Jesus in the way that you should, and you, you know that that needs to change. Maybe it's a, a job, a career path that is consuming you, the prospect of it is, is great and it offers this hope of financial security and everything and you are pursuing it with everything that you have regardless of the fallout that happens in your life around you. 
with your family, with your kids, with your friends, with your community, with your ability to be here and gather with God's people? What becomes the ultimate and first priority in regards to your job and your pursuits? Maybe it's your home. But that's your space and you protect it with everything that you have, unwilling to open it up to anybody. Because it might get messy. Some other kids might come in and break things on a life group night. I know my kids have broken stuff in your homes. Are you willing to to let some of that die so that you can actually serve and care for others? Maybe it's your time. You just need, you know, you're introverted, so you just need you need me time and, and time to myself, and, and, and I get that. And there's some, some value and, and, and truth in that. But maybe somebody in your life has been asking you, hey, hey, would you be willing to read the Bible with me? You want to get, get together and maybe, it'll, maybe just get up early before work so that we can have some time studying Scripture together. And you're just like, no, no, I just I can't fit that in. I can't fit that in. I just, you know, got, got too much going on. What needs to die in terms of your schedule and your time so that you can actually invest in other people and things that are, that are most important in Jesus' perspective? We could talk about our money. We could talk about all of our resources. So many ways in which this can apply in our lives. Maybe you're holding on to bitterness that is just ravaging a relationship or in your marriage that you can't get past and get over. Will you allow some of those things to die so that God can produce a harvest of fruit in your life, in your relationships, in your marriages, in your community? Or are you just one of the crowd? One of the crowd looking to get something from Jesus and not a true disciple who's willing to follow Jesus wherever He leads. You see, the cost of discipleship is not cheap. And Jesus wants His disciples to know this. Because in the coming days, the full display and the cost of His life is going to be put upon the cross and on display for the world. And it cost Him everything. But what we see is that what Jesus offers us is ultimately glory. It's ultimately the honor of the Father. The path of discipleship although it may look like death now, is actually the only path that will lead to true joy, true honor, and true glory. And so as we launch into this Holy Week, I pray that we could be a people who remember Christ's sacrifice for us. Why He rode that donkey down to Jerusalem in the face of persecution and would in a few days be nailed on the cross for our sins. Let us reflect on Him as our King. Our unexpected King. The One who comes in an unexpected way, both in boldness and strength, but also in deep humility. He offers us not just temporal deliverance from all of our troubles and trials, but He offers us an eternal deliverance. He gathers people that that you wouldn't expect, not based on what we can bring to Him, but based on our recognition of who He truly is. And Jesus establishes for us an unexpected kingdom. Not built on the the common ideas of greatness that we often think of, but it's one founded on self-sacrifice, service, and true discipleship. I pray that we will be a people who reflect on this unexpected king this week. As we remember his death, and as next Sunday we come together in the glorious celebration of his resurrection.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Pray that we would be a people who continually are willing to submit our lives to it. I just pray that you would guide us into true discipleship, that we know what it means to truly follow you with everything that we have, no matter what the cost. And give us the ability to believe that it's worth it. Even when what we, what we look at in front of us looks like death, that it's through that that you could produce life and you could produce a harvest of fruit. So I pray that you would guide us this week. Let us reflect deeply on your sacrifice for us. But let us live as people who, who live in confidence and joyful celebration because our Savior is not dead, but He is risen. And we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.